Welcome to Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host, Mr. Tom Jokic. And Tom, you have done some digging this week. I sure have. Christopher, way back in Episode 7 of Season 1, you told the very best Robert Plant story that I or anyone else on the history of the earth has ever heard. It was so funny. And any story with Robert Plant and Don Rickles in it that's well told like you did it is a hit out of the park. We've heard from Robert Plant on a couple of occasions already on the series, but I found this great series of clips with Robert Plant talking about Led Zeppelin while he's still in the band. And it's just great stuff because... He seems to look back on those days now with a certain disdain. So it's really interesting to hear him, while he's still in the band, being kind of enthusiastic about what they are, what they represent, and how great the other members of the band are. So that's coming up this week on Famous Lost Words. So what else have we got going on this week, Tom? Well, Christopher, as you know, just a couple of weeks ago, we added another member to the family, and that is CKLW AM800 in Windsor. And that is an absolute thrill for a number of reasons. You and I know about the great history of CKLW, and it applies to your history as well. So tell that story. Well, when I was first making records, which is a long time ago, My first single was called Once in a Long Time. This was in 1977, produced by Jack Richardson. Mm -hmm. And um, my friend Stephen Stone, who wrote the song with me, and I were waiting just desperately for to hear it on the radio because that's the moment. That is the absolute magic moment for a songwriter Mm -hmm. or an artist. And I remember the song got added by The Big Eight. Right. CKLW. By Rosalie Trombley, I remember the name. She's a very famous Canadian broadcaster. She sure is. And um, they added it, and I just was in heaven. And I'll never forget the first time hearing it on the radio. And Stephen has a similar memory as well. So love that you guys are part of the family. That's great. I have to tell you a funny story. I DJed the wedding of Rosalie's daughter. Okay. And this was just, well, it's probably a good 15 years ago. And while I was DJing, Rosalie, of course, a legend in Canadian radio, and she was there, of course. And as I'm playing all these great songs from the past, I could hear her actually talk about the time when that artist, the Supremes or Kiss or whatever, came into the studios of CKLW. Mm. It was a really big deal. It was a great moment for me. And I know she had a great time that night. So that's big news. That's a good story. Yeah. Love that. I mean, they were hugely influential at the time as well, and probably still are, Yeah. because when they played something, it bled across the border, and a lot of times it was the first opportunity for a Canadian act who'd never really busted out of Canada to be heard south of the border, and then hopefully get picked up by Detroit stations and so on. Sure. So big shout out to CKLW, also News Talk 1010 in Toronto, CJAD in Montreal, and CFRA in Ottawa. We're just so pleased that our family is growing. And of course, you can hear this show as a podcast on the iHeartRadio app. So that's the first thing I wanted to shout out this week. We still have Led Zeppelin to go. Also coming up this show, we have Boz Skaggs from the late 70s, Pat Benatar from 1980, Casey and the Sunshine Band from 1977, and Demi Lovato, of all people. I know that's a, that's a weird fit at the end of the show, but she's going to be great. It's from 2013. She's live with us in Barbados, and it's a great, fun conversation to end off the show. Also, we're going to play the story behind a really big novelty record that was not by a novelty group at all. And the subject of the song is the one that will tell us the story. It's a fun song and a fun story. But first, let's get started with Robert Plant and Led Zeppelin. 
That's Cashmere from 1975, Led Zeppelin. Go ahead, Christopher. Tom, this is vintage stuff, and I'm so happy that you dug it up. Um, Speaking of vintage, I saw Led Zeppelin in November of 1969, and it was the wildest thing I had ever seen on a stage. Uh, rock writer Richie York reviewed the concert saying, quote, The Rolling Stones have harshness, the Beatles' warmth, the band has complexity, blood, sweat, and tears have tightness, but Led Zeppelin have guts. Hard, ear-smashing guts. Unquote. Well, I would not disagree with any of that. I'm just not sure why he needed to put blood, sweat, and tears in that company. Because they were huge at the time. Well, okay, there you go. (laughs) From a recording career that lasted a little over a decade, the band sold over 300 million records worldwide. This interview with Robert Plant is from around the time of 1975's Physical Graffiti. Planty, as always, has lots to say. He talked about the origin of the band's name. I believe that there's a term in um, North America... A sort of a party term, if you like, when you tell a joke and it bombs. The joke goes down like a lead balloon, a lead zeppelin. So uh, sounded like a good um, pun, you know, mm-hmm. to start as the failure, you know, just and see how it goes from there, you know. Great stuff. The name starts as a failure. And here, Robert talks about meeting Jimmy Page and how that all came about. John and I, Bonzo and myself, have worked in the band of joy and the crawling king snake since we were kids you know and uh, i thought he was the greatest drummer around definitely i mean including professional bands at the time so we knew each other and similarly uh, jimmy and john paul knew each other really well to a degree from working in session and um when keith ralph decided to leave the yardbirds it was a case of getting a vocalist and jimmy approached terry reed who was a brilliant ace white vocalist and he said no no not me but i know somebody who really would fit um, the picture and so jimmy came up and saw me we got together and just sat around playing records to begin with just to see whether in fact i wasn't going to be a sort of a a bay city roller you know anyway we got on really well and our tastes were very similar and then we started rehearsing and found that it it sort of diversified quite a bit from the yardbirds uh, trip and so it's always no good sailing along on the name of an old band when this is so vigorous and so full of life. So we just changed horses. I love how he's a fan of the band, you know, Bonzo, the greatest drummer around, because, like I said, he seems to have a disdain for anything Zeppelin these days. So it's great to hear him so enthusiastic. I think we need a, like a cage match with him and Elvis Costello. For grumpy guys? <laughs> Don't you remember what Costello said about, about Led Zeppelin? Oh, yes! <laughs> yeah. Okay, well. so, so Christopher, refresh our memory. Do you remember what he what he said exactly? It was something like, I hate Led Zeppelin and everything they have spawned. It was something <laughs> to that effect. <laughs> but don't I, quote me. I think you're right. Mm, thank you, Elvis. Um, bands always grapple with the difference between recording and touring. We spent a lot of time with physical graffiti because it went right across the board from one side to another, you know. I'd like to have another bash at doing it over such a large period of time in, in the future because if you give yourself enough time you can sort of get off one bus and get on another one you know and it doesn't you don't clutter it with there being a sort of a we've got to do an album in x amount of hours which is something we've never done anyway to be quite honest we know that in the end what it sounds like on on a piece of plastic really is representative of us until people can see 
how it works out on stage, you know. And that obviously stage is the most important thing. The golden platform or the boards or whatever you may call it, you know. I mean, that's really the most important thing. But you should never, ever feel under any pressure in a studio because, I mean, artistically and satisfaction-wise, you're only going to tread on your own toes, you know. It takes time to get things right. Before Swan Song was formed, we had to uh, let these people know that, I mean, if they wanted what they wanted, if they wanted... See, they, they're interested in selling records. We're interested in creating something that we can be proud of, stand by. And to do that, we must have the pliability from everybody around us. The people must allow us to do exactly what it takes to have the time that's necessary to create so everybody had to toe the line or there would have been no rapport at all and a lot of people say right why does zeppelin wait four or five months to get a cover right you know but the thing is when when somebody picks it up and they take it home with them and they the whole thing is a little bit isn't it goes off on a tangent you know you don't just put it in a white trademark of quality pig records or anything like that you know i think that every band who does anything at all really has got to take it right down the line it's a, it's just a case of whether they're in a position to be able to do that the success of our first album allowed us to do that allowed us to have the weight that we needed to say right now we've really got to do what we think is right you know i mean what's the point of a man being given canvas and and paints if he's being told what to do, you know. So the success of that first album gave them the freedom to do what they wanted, and man, that's really all any band asks for. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, sometimes the people you're supposed to trust give you bad advice. A guy who um, managed me for a while couldn't see where I fitted into anything at all vocally and in my sort of musical intentions. So he told me to quit. <laughs> that was not a smart person right there. Robert talks about what it will take to keep Led Zeppelin going strong. When you're working inside that sort of unity and everybody, nobody tries to overpower anybody else, the whole thing moves freely and naturally so that in the end, Led Zeppelin is a combination of four very powerful forces. So we can hope to keep going for a little while longer. We'll rock on. Oh, great finish. Robert Plant, Led Zeppelin from 1975, and he ends with the words, we'll rock on. And they did, just for a few more years, but they (laughs) did indeed. This is Famous Lost Words. I'm Tom Jokic with Christopher Ward. Christopher, it was just a few months ago when we played a Pat Benatar interview, and I, off the top of my head, think that that interview was probably from the mid to late 80s. And it was excellent. She was very likable. But I got to tell you, this interview that we've dug up from 1980, just as Hit Me With Your Best Shot is hitting the charts, is even better. So, Christopher, take it away with Pat Benatar. But first, let's hear Hit Me With Your Best Shot. What a great song. Shout out to my friend Eddie Schwartz who wrote that song. Yes. And Christopher, (laughs) can we have Eddie on the show? Yes, I'm going to ask him. Please do. Tom, Pat Benatar sang in the school choir. She did musical theater, and she thought about the Juilliard School of Music, but got married instead. (laughs) Luckily, the story doesn't stop there. She quit her job as a bank teller. At age 19, wow. to chase her dream to become a singer. I know, I, I love the little capsule version of people's histories. She was inspired by 
Liza Minnelli. What? <laughs> Go figure, right? Yeah. And she got a gig as a singing waitress. Hmm. And just to keep things in the Minnelli family, she auditioned with a Judy Garland song, who's Liza's mother, and got a gig at a comedy club. Okay, wait a second. In this interview... Wait a second. So she auditions with a Judy Garland song and gets a gig at a comedy club. That tells me that they thought her Judy Garland song was funny, (laughs) and that ain't what you want. (laughs) Uh, You know what? I think this song, if I recall from my reading, I think this song was an Al Jolson tune. Rock by your baby with a Dixie melody. Right, yeah, I do. Um, Continuing right along, in this interview from 1980, which which is early in her career, she talks about all kinds of things, including a chance performance that led to a career. The story start for you that you had gone to uh, the showcase club Catch a Rising Star New York, had been discovered by its manager who is now your manager, right? right? How long before all of that happened and busted wide open were you plugging away at things? Not long. I mean, that was that was five years ago. Um, before that, I had only been singing about a year and a half for money, <laughs> for the, which is what makes you professional. I mean, I'd always sung my whole life in school and in theater things and, um, you know, community things, but never publicly for money or anything like that. So actually, Catch a Rising Star really was the first really big thing that I ever did. She had to learn to live on a steady diet of rejection. We were starving. I was married at the time, and we had no money, and we were broke, and it was, you know, going through the whole thing of wanting to sing rock and roll and being a girl when it wasn't fashionable at the time, and everyone saying, Janis Joplin died, give it up. That's what they'd say to me all the time. Every agency, including the one that I belong to now, passed. (laughs) Every record company except for Chrysalis passed, even with Heartbreaker on the tape. Wait a minute. So you're telling me all Mm -hmm. those record companies had Heartbreaker on their desk and went, yeah, no. Like, how? Did they not have ears? Well, I think we have to pay attention to what she says, which is that women rock and rollers just weren't a thing then. Mm -hmm. And she was really a pioneer. Yes, she She sure was. And and Joan Jett, you know? Yeah. And Tina Turner, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, She worked to find an image that was right for her. Back when you were uh, thinking about music and maybe starting to get involved in it, did people like Linda Ronstadt and Phoebe Snow and and those people have an effect on you or not? Um, I've always loved Ronstadt's voice and, you know, there's a lot of female singers that I really love their voices, but they always had the image that I didn't want. That was probably the most influence that they gave me was that I didn't want to be like them. So what I tried to do is find some kind of middle that was between them and being an out-and-out androgynous kind of female singer, you know. Um, it's the toughest position to take, I think, but um, it's the one that I feel most comfortable in. Wow, she considers herself androgynous. That's funny that she refers to herself in that way. Interestingly, though, I mean, she's a very thoughtful person. I think this interview reveals that. And she's a young artist at the time. Yeah. She already had a very good understanding of the relationship between performer and audience. Do you like to flirt on stage? Yeah. Is, is there a, a definite... I know other rock singers, mostly male rock singers, I guess, have talked about the power and how it's like making love to thousands of people. It, yeah, it's Is it like that, that way for you, too? It's like that. I mean, it's not... I don't think that they're thinking that when they're doing it. Right, I mean, it's yes. after the fact, because right. um, you're not really thinking of it sexually at all. I mean, maybe some people are, but no, I don't, I mean, that's not what it is for me. It's, um, um, you do feel the power of it, but the power is a thing that is a shared thing back and forth. 
they're so powerful coming back to you. I mean, when you see all those people coming back to you, like you come at them, um, it really equalizes itself out. Uh, it's a rock and roll's a sexual thing, you know. That's mm -hmm. what it is, but um, not sexual. I should say sensual thing. It's just great, whatever it is. Hmm. Very interesting. Not sexual, but sensual. She says, "Very good." Yeah, great answer. She waited to work with Mike Chapman. He, of course, had produced Blondie's records and all kinds of other hit records. Mm -hmm. But when it happened, it was not all roses. The first album in the heat of the night. Uh, how did it come about? How did you? Um, it was front, through Rick and through the working at the club that um, we got noticed and then we did a debut concert and Chrysalis came down and, you know, through that whole thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, everybody, especially Rick, was real influential in getting it, you know. And then right after that, um, we started doing the album with somebody else and it didn't work out, so we waited about six months until Chapman became available because that's who I'd originally wanted, but he was um, doing the Parallel Lines album at the time and he was real busy. He's wonderful and terrible at the same time. He's such an ominous man. Him and Peter both. I mean, they're both very strong personalities. They're great, but they're so obnoxious. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but you love them. I mean, that's the way they are. Well, how about Keith Olsen now on the new album? How is he to work with in comparison? He's very different. He's a lot lighter handed on it. You know, he um, he's basically the kind of producer who um, steers you along. You know, the band. It's pretty. I mean, Neil and he together produce that record. You mm -hmm. know, so um, Neil, Neil, Neil Geraldo, right? He's Geraldo, the band leader, and he yeah. he's mostly responsible for you know for the songwriting and the sound and arrangements and things. I do basically vocal arrangements and lyrics and things like that. So together, the three of us, um, mostly Neil and Keith, um, really produced the record. That's funny. She does not reveal her true relationship with Neil Geraldo at that point. I think they were an item in 1980, and they wouldn't get married for another couple of years. Neil is quite the character. Now, I've heard very recent interviews with Neil within the last two, three months, and I got to tell you, when you hear him talk, it's almost like he takes full credit for all of Pat's success. There's something that kind of rubs me the wrong way whenever I hear Neil Giraldo, especially in this current day and age, when I hear him talk. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know where I'm going to go on this. It's like, well, what are her greatest songs? I mean, Hit Me With Your Best Shot. Right. Um, how about um, We Belong? Yes. Killer song. Right. I didn't write that. Right. And um, Love is a Battlefield, Holly Knight song. Tom, she had it all. She had a fantastic image. She was a great stage performer, and that voice was utterly unique. But but she had to reach for songs, you know, outside the sphere of what they were writing. And yeah. I mean, it's a good thing she did. Absolutely. And isn't Love is a Battlefield a great song? It's one of the few kind of fully synth drum machine songs that still sounds great today. And thankfully, there is that Neil Giraldo guitar riff in there, and that sounds great for sure. And her vocal. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. We have one more. Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> I love this one. Um, she may not know what a hit is, she says, but she does know what she won't do. I don't ever think about what's going to go good on the radio. I have you don't no think idea. In terms of hits or. Oh, no, I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't know a hit if I fell over one. I have no idea. I just sing what I like to sing and what I know lyrically I can put across. Some songs, I mean, I can't sing a song with the word sunshine in it. That's it. I can't <laughs> do it. I just can't ever do this. This is an impossibility. It's not credible for me, you know. <laughs> She's Ain't not no sunshine in my song. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Very good. It's hard to believe that Pat Benatar is now 65 years old. And going strong. Good stuff. Pat Benatar on Famous Last Words. 
Tom, if you had to name the top disco songs of all time, <laughs> and it could be painful, <laughs> like really quickly without thinking about it, what would they be? Stan Alive, yep. I Will Survive. Yes, Best of My Love by The Emotions, yay, one of my favorites. Love to Love You Baby, mm-hmm. uh-huh. YMCA. Oh, dear. <laughs> and my personal favorite, <laughs> I Love the Nightlife, right? Okay, so we've gone past five already, but wouldn't you have to make room for at least one of... That's the way I like it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Get Down Tonight. Ooh, great song. Great beginning of that song. Or Shake, 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 Shake Your Booty. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no? Well, I do. Listen, I, I actually still DJ, and so I play uh, That's the Way I Like It for sure. If I'm ever getting anywhere near disco, that's the song I'm playing. And Get Down Tonight. Uh, and Shake Your Booty, yeah, sure, occasionally. Well, KC and the Sunshine Band, who are guilty of the last three songs, came out of Florida. And <laughs> guilty. <laughs> hence the sunshine in the band name. And they used Harry Wayne Casey's last name, Casey, C-A-S-E-Y, um, in 1973. When they formed the band, two years later, the hits started rolling in. Mm-hmm. So in this interview from 77, Casey talks about dealing with a rambunctious audience. Well, not all the time do I get mobbed on the stage like tonight. Uh, we didn't even get to finish Get Down tonight. Um, uh, it's happened a few times when the stage is like the level of the audience or below them or something. But when any time the stage is up high, usually I just stand still and wait to be rescued by my crew. Because if I move or something, I might lose something, you know, clothes, jewelry, anything. And I just would rather not lose anything or get anyone hurt. So I just stay still. Oh, that's so funny. Isn't it? So when all <laughs> H-E double hockey sticks is breaking loose around him... He's just standing still. Well, it's kind of like <laughs> when, when your dog spots a squirrel in the park. Yeah. And the squirrel just stands there and, not, and doesn't move a muscle, for, yeah. uh, hoping that your dog will mistake it for a piece of wood. <laughs> that never works. <laughs> <laughs> no, it does for my dog. Okay. <laughs> While millions shook their booty, there were many others who thought that disco sucks. Yeah. The music got mocked mercilessly, mm-hmm. never mind the fashion, and mm-hmm. the people that loved it, too. Well, Casey had to deal with being categorized. Mm-hmm. I think the only thing that's going to happen is uh, uh, there's going to be a, a different categorization of records. That, you know, every time a record comes out that's soul or you can dance to, it's automatically a disco record, you know. Is that to say that if, if they would put out Stop in the Name of Love right now, that would be a disco record or, or any of those old records that were danceable or... Uh, come on up by the rascals would that be a disco record now uh, or would the twist you know I guess the twist would be a disco record you know what was it then it is interesting because anybody who's part of a fad always kind of rejects being that um, because they know once that fad ends if they're too closely linked to that fad or that style of music once that goes out of style so do they and so they always try to distance themselves from being part of a larger group or being categorized I think he makes one really good point, and that is that, if if I take it, his, his meaning, that anything that was a big dance hit could just as easily, with a tiny bit of rearranging, be called disco. Mm-hmm. Um, fame did grab a hold of his life. No, it's starting to affect me now because I love being one of the people, and I'm finding that I can't too much anymore, and that that's that hurts sometimes. You know, I, I really like being part of the people. A lot of times I see crowds sitting, I just love to go out and just mingle all in them, you know, and just, but uh, sometimes that's not possible. The fact that he would like to mingle, isn't that the complaint of anybody who sees any sort of fame, that they want to be anonymous for a little while? Yeah. Well, some of them get it back. 
<laughs> Hi, didn't you used to be KC from KC and the Sunshine Band? Oh, oh man. man. Um, well, the interviewer asked where he thought he'd be in 10 years. In 10 years? I really don't know. Um, when they asked, when they, when they, when I, when I graduated in, in, uh, in the choral department, they gave me a little bucker and, but, but, little sticker that said I'd be standing on a street corner with a monkey grinding away, you know, <laughs> 10 years from 69, and this is 77. So I don't know where I'll be in 10 years from now, wherever the path takes me. That's always a tough question. Boy, oh boy. Great stuff. Famous Lost Words, Casey and the Sunshine Band. Hey, Tom, you know, by the time he hit the jackpot, Boz Skaggs had bounced around the business. First, he was a guitarist and vocalist in the Steve Miller Band back mm-hmm. in their earliest years. Right. And then he went through a number of solo records that nobody bought, <laughs> as sometimes happens. But luckily, he just kept banging on the door. And he's had a long and varied career after the big sales peaks of the 70s, which we're going to talk about. He toured as a solo act and also with Donald Fagan and Michael McDonald in a group called the Dukes of September Rhythm Review. Yeah. Now, they were all on stage at the same time, weren't they? Because that happened just a few years ago, and I saw highlights of that. How was it? Fantastic. So Donald Fagan and uh, Boz Skaggs are backing up Michael McDonald on songs, and then they were like each other's backing band. That's cool. And it was really good. Yeah, for sure. So in this interview from his peak in the late 70s, Boz talked about the ups and downs of trying to start a solo career. After I left Steve, I uh, really had no intentions of becoming a solo artist necessarily. I really was just getting involved with different musical things. And it so happened that a solo career loomed for me. I'd had ideas of it, of course, working with Steve and doing my own material, Mm -hmm. but uh, it just so happened. I was encouraged by some people to make a go of it, and and I did. I think I'd I'd have to owe a good deal to a fellow who lived across the street from me Mm -hmm. uh, in San Francisco. He was a his name is Jan Winner. He had just formed Rolling Stone magazine, and he's a, he was a very, he's a very musical person. He's, he's always loved music, and uh, we'd had a number of conversations and about music, and we'd listened to a lot. We talked about it a lot, and uh, the more uh, we talked, the more we were encouraged to uh, try to do something. And uh, he, it was really on his initiative that uh, Atlantic Records was contacted, and he uh, worked with me on that first album, and. We sort of saw that through, and it was, I suppose, the beginning of my solo career. The first album was for Atlantic Records. Jan Winter and I uh, worked in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, with the Muscle Shoals rhythm section. It came out and did not so well. It didn't get around all that much, but it was well-received uh, critically, and it uh, sort of alerted some other uh, people, the fact that I was there as to what I was doing. Uh, I was dropped by Atlantic because of minimal sales, number one, and there were certain conditions by which that I, I could stay with Atlantic that I didn't really see as pertinent. They were just business things. That, uh, and I was uh, feeling, say, a, a bit more progressive after that first album. I was, re- I was eager to get a fresh start with things. And, uh, so I really welcomed the fact that I could uh, move on and... I put a band together and started playing around the San Francisco area and uh, came to the attention of several major recording companies and it so happened that uh, I signed with uh, CBS 
Clive Davis uh, was responsible for signing me. And we made our first album for Columbia called Moments, which featured my band and uh, was fairly well received. I mean, certainly better than the Atlantic album and enough to get me around the country and, and uh, get me on the road. Well... It helps when your neighbor's uh, Jan Wenner from Rolling Stone, that's for sure. <laughs> no kidding. I mean, yeah. he's so casual about dropping the name, yeah. but I mean, of course, Jan Wenner's, you know, fame has only grown since mm-hmm. then as the magazine has persisted through the years. Sure. Right? Have you read the story about him, Sticky Fingers, the story of Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone? No. It's, it came out uh, in 2017. A writer got full access to Jan. They interviewed him for hours and hours and hours. Then he wrote the book, and Jan is disgusted by the book. But the book is very, very good. And one of the reasons why Jan is so bothered by it is because it does focus quite a bit on his sexuality. Oh. Um, uh, because his sexuality was fluid. Like, the, you know, he had a lot of relationships with a lot of different people. Um, and so it talks about his marriage and, you know, all that stuff. But it also talks in great detail about his ambition and some of the things that he would do and some of the people he crossed, including John Lennon. There's a great story where John Lennon agreed to do some interviews with Jan Winner as long as Jan did not publish those interviews outside of Rolling Stone. So, Jan, you can interview me. I'll tell you everything you want, do not make a book out of this and sell it. Mm-hmm. Guess what happened? Yeah. He issues a book called John Lennon Remembers, and he's just beside himself, and they never spoke again. And of course, the place where we went to when John Lennon was killed was Rolling Stone, and he did such a loving tribute to him after, but at that point, they hadn't spoken in years. Wow. Yeah, so many good stories in that in that book called Sticky Fingers, and he hated that title. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, also, I mean, he was trying to promote the 50th anniversary um, Rolling Stone magazine. That's, that's right. One of the hits from Boz Skagg's biggest record, Silk Degrees. Oh. Lowdown. Love that song. I used to play that in my band. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Did it sound exactly like Boz Skaggs? No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the lyrics have an unusual source. Lowdown is, is street talk. You know, mm. Lowdown, I don't know how much is understood. Uh, surprisingly, it's been a hit in mm. Australia and, and in Holland and marginally in, in England. But I don't know how they understand it because it's street lingo. You know, Boskag's talking about Lowdown and all those really great sounding songs that are California kind of mid 70s, late 70s pop, very smooth. A lot of the guys from Toto, a lot of the guys that would become Toto would play on those songs. Mm-hmm. And our friend who we just spoke to recently, Mark Jordan, was part of that gang too. But one of the, remember one of the things he said, oh, right? <laughs> yeah. his quote was, I went to LA as James Taylor and left as Boz Skaggs. They turned me into Boz Skaggs. <laughs> and that wasn't meant kindly towards what they did to his music, even though I'm sure he'd be fine with Boz Skaggs' music because it's fantastic. But they turned Mark Jordan's music, Mark's an excellent songwriter, um, they turned his music into maybe a little more slick than he wanted to, and he became Boz Skaggs. That's what he said. Love that quote. Right. It's a great quote. And But those songs, you know, Jojo, uh, Lido Shuffle, mm-hmm. um, and, and of course some of those ballads like We're All Alone, uh, which was, uh, you know, a huge hit for other artists as well. Those were great songs. Okay, Christopher, Time to talk about one of the most unique and I would say one of the biggest novelty records of all time from a band that was not a novelty, the Guess Who. Right. But from a guy who was a novelty only in the sense um, that he was a unique person, and that is Wolfman Jack. Right. So the song we're talking about is Clap for the Wolfman by the Guess Who, (laughs) and here is Wolfman Jack telling 
how he got involved with the recording of that song when he talked to Burton Cummings. What happened was uh, I was in Toronto like three months ago, and I, I was doing an auto show up there, you know, with a, a lot of models and all the chopped and channel cars and, the, and, you know, the whole thing. You've been to the auto show. And uh, uh, Bert, you know, who I've been friends with for a long time, called me up and, uh, and said uh, he had written a song about me, right? Well, I was totally elated with that, man. I passed out twice when I heard that. And uh, I went and met him. Uh, you know, at first he came up to the hotel room and played it for me over cassette. Passed out seven times that time when I heard it. Now, then we went to the studio. He said he wanted me to come out and, and do some ad-libbing, you know, do, do some kind of shtick over the song. So, of course, I was, you know, I wanted to do that. So I left the auto show that night, and I brought about 12 or 13 prime timers with me. Anyway, we went into the studio, brought in about four cases of beer, and proceeded to have a party. Now, uh, he just kept running the track over and over and over again, and uh, I would, uh, I was sitting there giggling with the girls, and we were having a nice time, and we took the best of the ad-libs and laid them in the slots there in the record. And uh, all had a great time doing it because the whole record is like a party thing. There you go. It was a real party. That's fantastic. Well, good for Burton. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I mean, he, Wolfman Jack is kind of a name, like a sure. museum piece name now. Sure. Well, I mean, let's explain to our younger audience who he was. He was just a very famous DJ, right. mostly, I think, in the 60s and the early 70s. Mm-hmm. And he became really famous as a voice in the movie American Graffiti, I think. I'm just kind of winging this. But he bit. also became famous for being on television as the host of Midnight Special. Right. I oh. hope I've got this right. We have okay. not researched this. No, is all we have just, not. just us pulling it out of the memory banks. <laughs> That's right. Um, anyway, yeah, he, he, in fact, you forget how important that show was because right. this predates video. This is before MTV, before much music, when if you wanted to see your favorite band, I mean, there was the sort of Ed Sullivan era. You'd sit and watch them on Sunday night, come and play one or two songs, or you'd see them on Dick Clark. Right. Or the other show was Rock Concert. Right. Right? Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. Don Kirshner's Rock Concert. (laughs) Yeah. I remember the first time I saw Tom (laughs) Joking. But Wolfman was one of those just irrepressible rock and roll personalities. For sure. And, you know, that was how you got a chance to see music before video. Absolutely. And he was quite a character, as that audio indicates. Okay, next up on Famous Lost Words is an interview with Demi Lovato from 2013. She joined us down in Barbados, so that's six years ago, and we had just a great time with her, and boy, is she ever likable. Now, this is quite a different kind of interview because it's it's morning show. It's meant to be fun. It's not meant to be revealing and deep, but it really is a lot of fun, and it reveals her character and her sense of fun, and it hints at a few other things, which we'll talk about later. This is Demi Lovato from 2013. First of all, this was an incredible opportunity like I have the best job ever yes and um, and then I don't I just was on stage and connecting with fans that I had never seen before and it just was a really incredible time I think you connect with fans probably better than than anybody and it was very evident last night especially with these these girls right here who are part of our breakfast in Barbados group 
They were right up at the front watching That's you last night. That's what makes you so special. Okay, I have to ask you, how's your fibula? My fibula? You scared so us. <laughs> you scared us. When we found out, we already announced that you were coming down here. Uh-huh. And then we understood that your roommate uh, 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 kind of cleaned the floors with Pledge. Yes. And then you fell because you didn't know that. And then you <sighs> had a cast on. Oh, damn So, like, three months ago, um, like, mid-January, I, my roommate... Uh, didn't know any better. She'd never cleaned the floors before. Right. Poor thing. So then, so she, so she used Pledge, the furniture oil. Yeah. And, um, and so I was walking and literally it was just like a freak accident in my own living room, just like walking, watching a movie with my friends. And then I slipped and everyone heard a snap and it was oh. like, I mean, literally from the kitchen. Oh, you could hear it. And you could oh. hear it. It was so gross. And I was like, I think. I think I probably broke it. And they were like, no, 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 you probably sprained it. And I was like, but it but it snapped. And they were like, Oof. yeah, but that happens when you sprain your ankle. I was like, I don't, I don't think, think so. so. Well, listen, yes. you were moving so well last night. Thank you know, I was just you. watching for that. I, the, what is it that you don't do? You, you, you know, you sing, you songwrite, you dance, you're a musician. I don't play sports. I suppose, you don't, okay, me too. I'm with I you on that one. Are you going to be back on season three of The X Factor? I am. Yes. yes. I am. So tell us about that experience with Simon Cowell. How is he treating you? He's treating me great. I mean, Simon is a butthead on TV. (laughs) And he can be a butthead, like, backstage. But it's all in good fun, you know? It's never, like, like vicious or anything like that. Like, I have... It's such a playful relationship that I have with him. And it's so awesome to be able to, like, insult your own boss and, (laughs) like, not get fired. (laughs) And it must be fun to be a mentor to people coming up. It is. It's really fun. Um, And also, it's... Nice because I I always wish that I had had a mentor for myself growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, Did you not? Um, I mean, I had my mom who had been a singer before, but she had never. She was like this close to becoming famous, and um, and then she got pregnant with my sister and decided to have a family instead. And so yeah, yeah. she knew kind of about touring and this and that, but when it come when it came to you know tabloids and things like that, she didn't know about it. So. You can prepare yourself as much as you can, but until you're living in that moment, you don't understand how hard it is. And now more than ever, everywhere you go, there is someone taking a picture of you or making a judgment call on you. Like right now, right behind me, I can feel someone taking a picture. (laughs) But you handle it so well, and you tell people how you handle it, which is really, really great, you know? Thank you. Yeah, you know, I think it's also, too, like, I'm not the kind of person that loves having my picture taken. And... I'll totally, I'll go on stage, I'll perform, I'll do photo shoots, whatever I have to do. Yeah. But um, when it comes, in taking pictures of my fans, that's totally fine. But when it comes to paparazzi, like, it's so weird. So I just don't even go to places in L.A. that there's paparazzi yeah. at. And I feel like more celebrities could avoid it. unless Absolutely. Unless you're you at a certain status and then, like... Kristen Stewart, I think she's at a certain status where she can't go anywhere, and I feel really bad for people like that. But, but some people are looking for it, and then they complain about it, right? Like, yeah, like Natalie Portman, you don't see her all over the place. No, and no. There, therefore, you respect her more for her acting. That's right. Everybody's on their own journey. You know, you, you can't prepare someone that... What I can say is that you can get through anything in your life 
and you can make your life so enjoyable if you just look around and are grateful for the littlest, tiniest oh, things. Like that's right. The fact that there's a skirt on, on on this table so that my you know area isn't showing in my dress, <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Like that kind of thing. You know, like the, we have an ocean right there. You know, that's we're right. breathing oxygen. Yes, we yeah. have oxygen left you. on this planet. Like there's so many little things, and so it makes the big things so incredible. I love that you said that last night about appreciation and being grateful too. You mentioned that last night. That's why your fans love you so much for sure because you re- really relate is there anything you want to say to your fans before we play heart attack yes i'm so grateful for my fans i'm grateful that my fans have given me the opportunity to be able to sing for a living and i'm just i'm so thankful for you guys for putting it on the radio so um it's still a dream come true when i hear it on the radio we love so, you yeah. demi lovato what is thank sweetheart. you demi lovato yeah. demi lovato from 2013 from barbados wasn't that great <laughs> She is so charming, Tom. I dare anybody not to not to like her. And that is a ton of energy. And you know, there's a lot of things that have happened with Demi, with mental health, with addiction, with health issues over the last few years since then. And ever since meeting her, I've really been kind of a fan. Like, I'm not, you know, her, like her, you know, she's had some great songs and all that. It's not the, so much that I connect to her music, but I just root for her because I've met her. And that's one of the reasons why I want to show this side of her, which is just so bubbly and fun. And she's she's got so much life. And I just hope that everything works out for her because I'm, I'm a big fan of her personally. Well, that does it for this week's episode of Famous Lost Words. Thanks to our technical producer, Adam Karsh, and our executive producer, Rob Farina. Also, thanks to the gang at Orbit Media, including Rob Basile, for their help in getting our show to as many ears as possible. Well, you can help, too, simply by listening to past episodes on the iHeartRadio app. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic, and we'll talk to you next week with another edition of Famous Lost Words.